0: So verses 18, 19, and 20 of Exodus chapter 4 are basically just narrative, just explaining what happened next. So after Moses meets with God at the burning bush, what happens then? Does Moses actually go to Egypt, does he not? 18, 19, and 20 immediately answer those questions. Moses goes to Jethro, his father-in-law, and says, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. A couple things about that. First is, it's possible that in the family structure of ancient Midian, Moses actually required Jethro's permission as the patriarch of the family to go. In which case, Moses is doing that which... Uh, is proper and is expected within the authority structure that he's operating in. Even if that's not the case, and there is some academic debate about exactly how the structure would have been at that time, Moses is at least being courteous. He's lived with the man, he's been a beneficiary of his hospitality, he's married his daughter, he's been working for him for years. This is at least a courteous thing to do. And Moses comes and says, please let me go back and see whether they are still alive. Whether my brothers are still alive. This is probably an idiom, basically, to check on their well-being. And so, Moses, it seems, is holding his cards somewhat close to his chest. And we need to distinguish between being tactful and lying. Moses is not telling a lie here. He is going to check on the well-being of his brethren in Egypt But you imagine if you were in Jethro's situation and your son-in-law came and said, I would like to go back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh and lead my people out of Egypt. That it would cause some family uh, stress and tension. And so it seems that Moses is being discreet here, even though he's doing the right thing and talking to Jethro. It's at least courteous, if not required within the family structure. But Moses still sees a place for discretion, and I think we might wisely do the same when we find ourselves in family situations that require a little bit of tact. We don't have to feel like we need to tip all of our cards every time and give all the information every single time. That's not necessarily owed to our adult fathers and mothers, or pardon me, as adult children to our fathers and mothers, uh, even if honoring them is required. So, bear that in mind. Jethro says to Moses, go in peace. Essentially gives him his blessing. Now Moses is in too deep. He's already agreed to the Lord to go to Egypt, and he's already set things in motion with his father-in-law. He's probably feeling like, what have I done? Oh man, I'm actually going. He's packing his bags the night before his flight, so to speak. And he's realizing, okay, the ticket's booked, I'm packing my bags, I quit my job. <laughs> it's really happening. It seems here that verses 19 and 20 contain, um, or pardon me, verse 19 contains basically assurance from God or reassurance from God. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. That seems to be the sense of it here. The Lord is reassuring Moses as Moses is setting things in motion to go. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Remember that God had commanded him in verse 17, Take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So it seems here that Moses, with a mixture of fear and trepidation as well as confidence in God and a measure of trust, is doing exactly what God said. He's got the staff in his hand. He's going in the power of God, under the command of God, back to Egypt. He's a little nervous, and so the Lord reassures him. It seems like this is basically what's happening in verses 18, 19, and 20. Now the Lord is giving him some further instruction in verses 21, 22, and 23. The Lord reiterates in 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. He's already told him to do that. This is just reiterating. Now he gives a little bit more detail. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. We'll speak to this issue of Pharaoh's hardening heart as we go, as it becomes a major theme over the next 10 or so chapters. But suffice it to say that even Pharaoh's hard heart and his refusal to let the people of Israel go is under the control of Yahweh, is under the sovereignty of Yahweh. This is actually, in some ways, discouraging, most likely, for Moses to hear that it's not just going to be smooth sailing. But on the other hand, When Moses goes and encounters opposition to remember that Yahweh had said, I will harden his heart, and he's not going to let you go immediately, that would be actually a comforting thing. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, verse 22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. This this is a motif that's developed throughout the rest of the Old Testament, but this is the first time that God's people collectively are referred to as His Son. Singular, And I say to you, that is Pharaoh, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So this is a struggle between God and Pharaoh. Whose son is going to die. And God is saying to Pharaoh, listen... You let my son go, or I'm going to kill your son. What are you going to do to my son? Because this is what I'm going to do to your son if you don't acquiesce. This is what's, this is the way that this whole thing is to be framed as Moses goes to approach Pharaoh. That is extremely, extremely important to bear in mind. As we now come to three of probably the most, at first glance, bizarre verses in the Bible. At a lodging place on the way, I'm just going to read it apparently how it goes in the Hebrew. As you all know, I don't read Hebrew, but I'm told by many reliable sources this is how it goes. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death And then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Let me back up. Surely you are a covenant relative of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a covenant relative of blood because of the circumcision. Okay, so we got a couple of issues going on here. One is, who's all the he's and the hymns? Alright. We're going to try to make sense of this. Just, what does this literally say? Then we're going to try to make sense of it theologically. Like, why is this happening? So, the hymns in verse 24 must refer to Moses. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. The reason for this is that Moses' firstborn son hasn't been introduced into this narrative as an individual yet. Earlier, of course, in verse 20, it says, Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey. But there's no sense that Moses' son is the theme of this overall section. Whereas Moses and his dealings with God certainly is a theme. So it's grammatically required, as Gershom, Moses' son, hasn't even been introduced yet. Secondly, if it was Gershom that the Lord sought to put to death, presumably Moses would have performed the circumcision. Why Zipporah? It seems because Moses was incapacitated. We're not told how the Lord sought to put him to death. Maybe at this point Moses was unconscious... Maybe at this point, the angel of the Lord was wrestling with Moses the way that he had wrestled with the patriarchs so long ago. We don't know exactly what's going on. But it seems that Moses is incapacitated because the Lord is endeavoring to put him to death. And so, Zipporah performs the circumcision. So, in verse 24, it seems the hymns is Moses. But the hymn, in verse 25, should probably be Gershom not Moses so in the esv it says then zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched moses' feet with it and the esv footnote acknowledges that it says his feet literally it's his feet that should probably be gershom not moses he touched she touched gershom's feet with it now You heard me say, surely you have become a covenant relative of blood to me, instead of a bridegroom of blood. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, and that phrase that the ESV has translated father-in-law is actually the same as what we see here, which is translated bridegroom. In 4, chapter 4 and verse 18, again, it's the same word. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law. It seems here that basically the semantic range of this word is anyone who is kind of a uh, relative brought about by some kind of covenant making. And so, in some cases, it's like a mother-in-law, a father-in-law. It might be... um, a bridegroom, it might be, it could have a large semantic range. So basically what's happening here is our ESV translators following traditional Bible translations have supplied bridegroom or husband here. But obviously Jethro wasn't Moses' bridegroom. Jethro wasn't Moses' husband. So that translation is actually not required. So it seems like as they've supplied father-in-law to make it clearer in chapter 3 and verse 1, and as they've supplied father-in-law to make it clearer in chapter 4 and verse 18, it seems that they've supplied bridegroom to try to make it clearer in chapter 4 and verses 25 and 26. The problem is that that's an interpretive decision, And it seems to me that they've made the wrong interpretive decision. Because it's Gershom, not Moses, who becomes a covenant relative to Zipporah via the circumcision. Let me explain that. Moses, born to faithful Hebrews in Egypt, would have been circumcised. Some commentators speculate that he probably wasn't because they didn't want to make him cry any more than necessary when he was a baby, and they were try- as they were trying to hide him from the Egyptians. And he probably wasn't because uh, then he could have easily been identified as a Hebrew baby if the Egyptians checked. But that's conjecture; that's bare conjecture. Whereas in Hebrews 11, we are told that by faith Moses was hid. Which means not Moses' faith, but the faith of his parents. Which tells us that they were faithful Hebrews. And so they weren't... I don't think it's fair to suspect that they broke God's covenant of circumcision for pragmatic reasons, when we're told in Hebrews 11 that they were faithful people. It's much more likely that they actually kept God's covenant of circumcision, which he had instituted back in Genesis 17. In spite of Pharaoh's edict. After all, they're defying Pharaoh in the first place by not killing their baby, right? So, Moses would have been circumcised and therefore numbered among God's covenant people. When Moses married Zipporah, she would have come to be included among God's covenant people. But who had not been given the covenant sign? Gershom. Which means at this point, Gershom was considered as being outside the covenant. And this is the whole point of the narrative. Gershom was outside of God's covenant people. And the Lord is trying to drive home to Moses that He makes a distinction between those who are His people and those who are not His people. That God makes a distinction between His son and the sons of Pharaoh. This is the context, remember, which came immediately before. God says to Pharaoh, you let my son go, or I'm going to kill your son. Depending on how you treat my son, it will affect how I treat your son. Now, at a lodging place, by the way, the Lord met Moses and sought to put Moses to death. Why? Because Moses had not circumcised Gershom, whom he should have. Now, God holds Moses accountable because obviously a small baby is not going to circumcise himself. So he's holding the father accountable. Even though it's Gershom who's outside the covenant at this time, it's Moses who is responsible for that breach. It's Moses whom God is sending to Egypt to proclaim that God makes a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. That God is going to act on behalf of his people against the people of Egypt. How could Moses go with an uncircumcised son who is covenantally related to God the same way that Pharaoh and his sons are covenantally related to God? Namely, outside the covenant. How could Moses treat it as an indifferent matter whether or not Gershom is among the sons of Israel or whether Gershom is counted as being outside? the sons of Israel. It would undermine Moses' whole mission. If Moses maintained this mentality that it's an indifferent matter, whether you're in God's covenant or not in God's covenant, how could he be prepared to go into Egypt and draw hard lines and say, look, it's either my son or your son? If there was not such a clear distinction in his mind between those who are counted as God's people and those who aren't. So this is an instructive incident for Moses, where God is prepared to strike Moses down for this breach of God's covenant of circumcision. This is what's happening in these three little verses. The takeaway for Moses is to be this the belonging to God's covenant people is a matter of life and death it's going to be a matter of life and death in Egypt and it's a matter of life and death here on the way to Egypt if you are a son of Pharaoh you are going to die for Pharaoh's hardness of heart for Pharaoh's Refusal to acquiesce to the God of Israel. For Pharaoh's refusal to join himself to God's covenant people. For Pharaoh's opposition to God's covenant people. For being outside the covenant. It is not the sons of those outside the covenant who are safe. It is the sons of those inside the covenant who are safe. It's God's covenant people who are safe. It is those who are not God's covenant people who are in grave danger. This is what God is driving home to Moses. It's necessitated by the context. Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God makes a distinction between those who are his covenant people and those who aren't. And that is exactly the same principle just delineated to Moses, which is the ground of this incident in 24, 25 and 26, where God is going to strike Moses down for his refusal to, for his failure, rather, to circumcise Gershom. And so Zipporah steps in, circumcises Gershom, and touches Moses' feet with it, or pardon me, touches Gershom's feet with it, and says, surely you are a covenant relative of blood to me. Because of the circumcision. Gershom has now become numbered among the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Gershom has now become one of the covenant people. And now there's no issue between Moses and God, between Gershom and God, between Zipporah and God. And so, he let him alone. Verse 26 says, This is what's going on in this baffling text. The takeaway for us is that the principle still holds. Belonging to God's covenant people is a matter of life and death. For them then, as pertaining to the Exodus from Egypt and the way that the Lord makes a distinction between His people in the land of Goshen and the Egyptians living elsewhere in the land, it was a matter of life and death as The Egyptians many times suffered the plagues, whereas God spared His people the plagues. And we'll come to that in due time. In the end, God did kill the firstborn sons of Egypt. Though He passed over the houses of His covenant people. God makes a distinction for them then, It was a matter of life and death, whether you were among the Israelites, who were God's covenant people, or whether you weren't. For us, it's a different covenant, but it is no less a matter of life and death. We often fail to think of our salvation covenantally. We ought not to, but we do. Very often we think of it like this. There's me... And there's Jesus. And Jesus substituted himself for me, and so I live. One for one. And that's not wrong, per se, but it's not the whole picture in terms of the way that Christ's work of salvation is presented to us in the Scripture. Christ's salvific work is presented to us as a covenantal work. And it's contrasted in the New Testament primarily with two other covenants. We're going to look at two passages which help us see Christ's work as covenantal work. The first is Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that? Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come." You don't have to understand all of that. But understand this. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass. The many died through which one man's trespass? Adam. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift... By the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And so what we see here in this passage is that Paul is setting up Christ's work as a covenantal work. Just as Adam acted as a representative, the one for the many, so Christ acts as a representative, the one for the many for the judgment following the one man following one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification for if because of the one man's trespass that's adam death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man jesus christ Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Do you see it? The word covenant is not there, but you can see that Christ's work was a covenantal work. Just as Adam's work was a covenantal work. When Adam sinned, he didn't just sin for himself as a private person. He sinned, he also didn't just sin for one other person. Like Eve or like one of his kids or something. He sinned for the many, all whom he covenantally represented. So when Christ obeyed the Father and lived sinlessly and died on the cross, He wasn't merely acting as a private person. Nor was He acting just for one person, like you or me. Again, it was the one for the many, all whom He covenantally represented. And so, there is this contrast between the covenant of works made with Adam whereby God placed Adam in the garden and promised life for obedience and death for breach. And Adam acted as a representative, the one for the many. Christ's work is contrasted or compared with Adam's work in the beginning. It's a covenantal work where Christ's obedience is is not just for he alone, but for all whom he covenantally represents. Just as Adam's disobedience was not for him alone, but all whom he covenantally represents. Let's look now at at Hebrews chapter 8. Beginning at verse 6, it says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Here we have explicitly the language of covenant. Christ mediates a covenant. And what we see is that Christ mediates a better covenant than the old covenant. Because the promises... Attached to that covenant are better. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and show, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord. This is the covenant with which Christ mediates. I will put my laws into their minds, and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach, each one his neighbor... And each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now we're not getting into everything in Romans 5, and we're not getting into everything in Romans 8, but I read you those passages because I think they're clear passages which show us that Christ's work was covenantal. Christ's saving work was covenantal. It is not simply that there's me and there's Jesus, and Jesus substituted himself for me. It's not simply that. That's not wrong per se, but it's reductionistic. What we need to understand is that just as God had Adam represent a people, so God has Christ represent a people. Just as there were a people with whom God entered into the Old Covenant, so there are a people with whom God enters into the New Covenant. Now with that in mind, coming back to our text this evening, Exodus chapter 4, we're, it is a matter of life and death, whether you are a child of Israel or whether you are a son of Pharaoh, it is a matter of life and death, whether you are numbered among God's people or whether you are numbered among the Egyptians. It was that way for them in the Exodus. The plagues were directed not toward God's people, but towards the Egyptians in a peculiar way. In the end, the very last plague, the destruction of the firstborn, it was toward the Egyptians. And God passed over the houses of His people who had the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts. In order, God says, that they would know that God makes a distinction between His people and those who are not His people. It was a matter of life and death, whether you were in God's covenant. Whether you were numbered among God's covenant people. That is what God was teaching Moses in this incident in Exodus chapter 4, where Moses had neglected to circumcise his son, And so his son was outside of the covenant of circumcision given to Abraham in Genesis 17. God was displeased about that and God was going to strike Moses dead for this neglect, for this failure. To show Moses just how serious it was. A matter of life and death. That Gershom be included in the covenant. That Gershom be administered the covenant sign. And numbered among God's covenant people. This is what's happening. This is what's playing out in Exodus chapter 4. It is a matter of life and death. Whether you are in God's covenant or not. For us, it's a different covenant. But it's the same principle. We are not... Administered the covenant sign of circumcision so that we might be in the old covenant which God made with Abraham in Genesis 17. We don't need to become ethnically or culturally or nationally Jewish as God is no longer making a geopolitical distinction between Israel and Egypt, as it were. We don't need to be included in that old covenant that Hebrews 8 talks about. That's not a matter of life and death for us, though it was a matter of life and death for Gershom, for Moses, for the children of Israel and Egypt. But it is a matter of life and death whether we are included in the new covenant which Christ mediates whether we are numbered among those people whom Christ covenantally represents. Whether we are numbered among those for whom Christ acts as Adam acted for those whom He represented. It is a matter of life and death whether we are in God's covenant. We ought to think of the Gospel not just as A whole bunch, millions or billions of exchanges and interactions between God and individuals, though it is that, it's not merely that. When those individuals come to know Christ Jesus, they come in to God's covenant people. There is a collective dimension to our salvation. That we are, as someone said, we walk through the gates, so to speak, single file. But when we get inside, we find there's a lot of people there. It's not just me and Jesus. I am numbered among the saints. And we are together, saved by Christ as the one acts for the many. As our mediator has saved us all By His obedience. By His life of sinless perfection. By His death bearing the penalty that we deserve on the cross. By His resurrection. By His ascension. By His priestly intercession. It is not just for me, but also for us. God has a covenant people. And it is a matter of life and death whether you are in that covenant. Whether you are numbered among God's covenant people. When we read through the Old Testament we need to see the dissimilarities so that we don't make faulty interpretations. God is not going to strike us down if we don't circumcise our sons. But as we read through the Old Testament, we also ought to see the similarities. 1 Corinthians 10 says that these things were written for our instruction. God is teaching us what He's like, what He requires, who we are. God is giving us principles that we need to apply to ourselves, even though some of the specifics and some of the circumstances are different. There are principles that we got to bring over. And what we need to bring over from this end here of Exodus chapter 4 is that belonging to God's covenant people is still a matter of life and death. So if you belong to Christ Jesus... You have been circumcised, as Romans tells us, in, inwardly. It's not a matter of the flesh, but the heart. And so you are among God's covenant people. If you're outside of Christ Jesus, the way in isn't the circumcision of the flesh... But it is experiencing that circumcision of the heart, that new birth, and responding to Christ Jesus with faith and repentance. And coming in to be counted among God's people. To being numbered with Israel, as it were, as opposed to Egypt. To say, Yes, I belong to God, I am His. I have a mediator who acts covenantally on my behalf, the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived, He died, He rose, He ascended, He intercedes for me and for us. And He's coming back for us, His covenant people, in the end. That's how you come in to be numbered among God's covenant people. Take that responsibility seriously. It is still a matter of life and death whether we are numbered among God's covenant people.